0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. I'm going to get right into this, I think, uh, except to say that if you haven't signed up for a small group, sign up. We would love for every single person. Uh, at living word to be in one of those small groups when you sign up you are not committing to being there every single time so if you're saying well i would like to but i can only go um, a couple times a month do it anyway and if you can't get in the group maybe the group you're most interested in is full sign up for a different one this is mostly about the fellowship and the connections and the time of praying for one another the subject matter is secondary to that and they will rotate these will go five months, we'll have a month break, and then we'll, ha- uh, we'll, we'll start a new round of them, maybe some of the same, maybe different ones, different leaders, but you're not committing to a lifetime of Wednesday nights or Thursdays or anything like that, or a particular group. All right? We want to get you to connected with as many people in this church as possible. And those sign-ups, I think, are still out there, right? Yeah OK. Hey, good morning, living word. Uh, Good morning to everybody who's tuning in uh, from elsewhere. Hope to see you soon. But meanwhile, thanks for joining us remotely. Wow, here we are. Uh, What, 12 days away? Is that right? 12 days till Christmas? And uh, 12 days until we celebrate officially the birth of Christ. We celebrate the incarnation of God the Son as the Son of Man. This was a day that the Israelites longed for. The day the whole world longed for, even if they didn't realize it. But there was, of course, a specific promise of the coming Messiah that was Israel's great hope. Uh, And out of that celebration, out of that promise, we have a whole season of celebration that has grown up around it. And yes, I understand there have been elements uh, incorporated that have nothing to do with the birth of Christ... Uh, But still, it's so pervasive that the the very idea, I think, should bring a smile to the face of believers. There are words that the world associates with Christmas. Um, Goodwill, giving, rejoice, greetings, wonder, festive, joy. Uh, And all of those words are pregnant with biblical truth. And I understand, of course, believe me, I understand that it's the death of and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that are the central truth of Christianity. Indeed, the focal point of all history is the resurrection. But the birth of Messiah remains a central event in the fulfillment of God's plan to redeem mankind, and therefore, again, I believe, utterly worth celebrating. Another thing we talk about around Easter, Resurrection Day, is that one of the reasons the Jews ultimately delivered Jesus to be crucified by the Romans was that he wasn't doing what they thought Messiah was supposed to do. That is, he didn't overthrow Rome and he didn't reinstall Israel uh, as the powerful kingdom it once was. This was the Messiah they wanted. Many of them wanted him at a certain time. They wanted him to be a certain way. His arrival, as we talked about last week, was not unexpected. Many of them had a good idea of the general timeline of when he was supposed to show up. And there's a number of things along that line that I want to consider this morning. But I want to start here by reading Matthew chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, you can open it. Uh, This is the only... Passage of scripture we're going to be looking at today. So it's a long one, it's the whole chapter. So we'll begin in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child with his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more." Now, when Herod was dead, <clears throat> excuse me. behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Look how many times it says this happened, that it might be fulfilled what the prophets said. Something, we'll just, I'll just throw that out there to start out with. Uh, but I want to cover some basic information about some of the characters in this passage uh, that's going to make it understand make it easier to understand the point I want to make or the few points. And we'll start with the wise men, Uh, the magi, as most of you know. Uh, These were astrologers. It says they were from the East. Um, There are songs and depictions of them as kings. And there actually were in this time and in this uh, broad region, there were such a thing as kings who were magi. But there's nothing scripturally that indicates that these guys were kings. The most likely uh, scenario is that these were uh, Persian astrologers. And uh, that means that they were descended from the Babylonian Empire. Babylonia just kind of melded into Persia. Persia, Babylonia, they're kind of uh, synonymous but I want you to remember that there were magi in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. you remember that? He had magicians and astrologers and wise men and so on. And who else served in the court of Nebuchadnezzar? The prophet Daniel. Remember? He was the wisest of the wise men. In fact, there was a moment when Nebuchadnezzar was ready to kill all of them. Because they could not interpret his dream. Who, who did it? Daniel. So Daniel saved his own neck, right? He saved all of their necks. This was a pretty uh, significant moment in their history. Now, I'm not saying that because of that one thing that the whole lineage of Magi remained loyal to Daniel for the hundreds of years between then and now, but I do believe it was an event that they remembered. And more importantly, uh, it wasn't long after that that Nebuchadnezzar, this evil king of Babylon, actually confessed that the God of Israel was the only true God. There's a whole chapter in the book of Daniel where it's Nebuchadnezzar in the first person. I believe, personally, I believe we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I think he had a conversion experience, the Old Testament version of that anyway. Uh, But when the king makes a declaration like that, you can be uh, pretty sure that his cabinet, his advisors, are going to fall in line pretty quickly. And I believe that there were many of these astrologers, many of these wise men who quickly sought to align themselves with Daniel. Now, you know, there was an opportunity later on under Darius where they had a chance to uh, put Daniel in his place. And how many of these were the same guys? I don't know. But I do believe, all I'm saying is, I think Daniel had the opportunity to speak into their lives and share some truths about the God of Scripture. They didn't have all the Scripture that we had. Daniel was still writing some of it, right? Right? Uh, but there was the law. There were some, the, some truths that he could share. He, I believe, and Daniel certainly knew the, the promise of Messiah. Daniel is the one who wrote the timeline, the prophetic timeline that told us, that told the Jews when to expect Messiah. And I think it's, it, it's, it's reasonable to believe that these magi from hundreds of years between Daniel and Jesus kept this belief alive. All that to say, when they said, we saw his star, this wasn't just some random thing, like they'd never heard of Jerusalem, they'd never heard of uh, Messiah. No, they saw the star or a a, a conjunction, a, a certain alignment that indicated to them that something they were already aware of had happened. Something that they knew was going to happen, something that had been prophesied had happened, and where it had happened. So they traveled 700 miles, I believe, from where they were to get to Jerusalem. And by the way, uh, this is not something everybody's uh, as interested in as I am. We don't know for sure um, what the star was. You know, we see the pictures, the manger scenes and everything, and the star is always right there. And it does say that the star reappeared. And so they, they, at, toward the last part of their journey the direction of Bethlehem, uh, was the, the, where the star appeared. But there's all sorts of theories about what the star was. And some believe it was a comet. Some believe it was something else. Uh, I think the best case is, is that it is a conjunction that certain planets, certain star, uh, certain planets appear in either close proximity to one another or in a certain constellation that means something. um, a, one great presentation, I don't know if they do it anymore. I would be surprised if they did, but the planetarium in Chicago used to put on a show every year called Star of Wonder, uh, and their, their suggestion is that I think the planets Jupiter and Venus and possibly, I, I can't remember if Saturn was in the mix or not, but certainly Jupiter and Venus uh, had a conjunction in the constellation of Leo. Leo which is the lion which we associate with the tribe of judah and not only in the constellation of leo but near the star in leo that is regulus which means king so you had jupiter which which represents king or high god and you had regulus which means king and venus which represented love all in the constellation of leo and it's like yeah it kind of makes sense i don't know but interestingly enough uh, now they I don't know how many you pay attention on, sh- on the 21st, I think. I don't know how many you pay attention to this, but Jupiter and Saturn are moving closer and closer together in the western sky in the early evening. And on June, uh, uh, June uh, December 21st, they'll be so close, uh, they'll almost look like they're overlapping. And some are saying that this is a possible, this might be part of what they saw, a part of what the, these wise men saw. The other thing, and it doesn't make a, you know, there's, there's whole messages about this, but I'll throw it out there even though I know that most of you know this. A couple things about these wise men and the timing here. The wise men weren't present in the manger. I know we've got a thing out there, a, a manger scene that, uh, that, that includes them, and that's okay because it's all part of the same story. But likely Jesus was uh, two years old at this time. It doesn't say anything about them going to the manger. They went to Bethlehem to the house he was living in. All right? So this was uh, some time. And remember, Herod inquires he, to, of the wise men, when did you see this star? And he does the math, and, and that's what causes him or compels him when he w- got his troops to Bethlehem. to. He didn't kill debate, just the, the newborns. wasn't somebody who was born that night. killed the children two and under to cover all of his bases. So this had, this had been some time. Also, as most of you know, The Bible says nothing about how many of these guys there were, but there almost certainly weren't three. It was likely a much larger retinue of these guys. Why do we say three? Because gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, Those were the gifts they brought, but we don't know how many of them brought it. I'm quite convinced there were more. Uh, Some sources say that these guys typically traveled in large caravans for their safety, especially if they were bringing all of these gifts, Uh, sometimes up to 100 of of, them. A hundred people would be in these caravans, whether they were all magi or if it were their whole families or servants or whatever. But the other reason I'm convinced it wasn't just a few is because when, uh, when, they, when they go before Herod to ask him, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And it says, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Uh, I, I believe that simply means the city noticed when these guys showed up. And they probably wouldn't notice if just three guys coming in holding little Little chests on uh, on their uh, camel saddle. I don't think it would have gotten the attention, but it's like, whoa! What are these guys doing here? It got their attention. This was a big, big deal. So, uh, they come in, and they they, and the guy they talk to. We've talked about the wise men, and we'll come back to him in a little bit. Herod is the other guy. We we need to explain a little bit. You understand? I think that Herod himself was not really Jewish. He was not a legitimate heir to the throne of David. He was a Roman client king. But he took his job seriously. Uh, and he had his supporters even among the Jews, especially among the ruling class. He's the one who was responsible more than anybody else for building the second temple. He had a vested interest in keeping peace between Judea and Rome. His, Herod's shtick was not to keep his foot on the neck of the Jews, but to be a popular king because if they liked him, they would support him, support his programs, and that meant tax revenue, that meant more money for him, and it meant Rome was happy because they were getting a big chunk of that, right? A lot lot of politics involved in in all of this stuff. Um, And he wasn't completely ignorant of of the word of God. He probably just didn't believe it as the word of God. (coughs) He just was very politically uh, clever in recognizing that the people that he was governing did. All right? Uh, So his scholarly staff confirmed that Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. How far is Bethlehem from Jerusalem? About five miles. Five miles away. And none of the scribes or Pharisees offer to accompany the Magi. Does that strike you as odd? They come, they, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we've seen a star in the east, and we've come to worship him or pay homage to him. So Herod turns to the scribe. Where is the, where, where's this guy supposed to be born? See, I think he was aware that there was such a thing as Messiah too. Where he didn't say, who's the Messiah? What are you talking about, born king of the Jews? I'm king of the Jews. No, he knew what they were talking about. So he says, where is this guy supposed to be born? It's supposed to be Bethlehem. And here's the scripture. Okay, uh, it's Bethlehem. So go, and then bring back word to me. Why didn't one scribe or one priest say, we'll go with you. We want to see this. These guys traveled 700 miles to see him. And the Jews, the ones who knew the word of God, the ones who were waiting on Messiah, wouldn't travel five. They were troubled. They were agitated by the visit of this company of wise men but they couldn't be bothered to go five miles with them. Um, Herod is easy to see through. We know what what drives his train, right? Self-interest. And we read it right here. He was in no way inclined to step aside. Oh, okay, I guess my job here is done. uh, If this guy has been born in Bethlehem, king of the Jews, uh, I guess as soon as he's old enough, I'll just step aside and, and we'll all just celebrate together. No, he's not going to abandon his dynasty to make way for Jesus or any other Jew to take his place on the throne. Pure self-interest. What about the scribes and priests, though? Do we think for a moment that they were in favor of the massacre of the innocents? I don't think they were. I don't think that was their plan. And we can kind of blow it off. Well, it was a brutal period in history. People did nasty things, and they really did. They probably thought, I guess if I were in their position, I might think, if it's the Messiah, they're not going to be able to kill him anyway. It's tragic that this happened. But if the Messiah was in that village, uh, there's no way God's going to allow his Messiah to be killed by Herod. He'll somehow survive. I I guess I would describe the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests who were in Herod's orbit anyway as lukewarm. I believe they believed that Messiah coming would be a good thing, but they weren't passionate about it or you'd think they would have uh, walked a few miles or ridden a few miles with the Magi. Uh, And we talked about this, we usually talk about this at Easter as well. The Jews who believed and even looked for Messiah, they weren't nearly as interested, I don't know how much they even thought about it, how interested they were in the birth of Messiah as they were in the appearance of Messiah. As the Messiah. They didn't want to think about the baby growing up. I, I've, I've always referenced Keith Green's song. Where that line that says, prophets don't grow up from little boys, do they? Of course they do. But they didn't want to see his development. They want the Messiah to burst onto the scene and do the job. So they weren't thinking in terms of let's go see this baby. So let's fast forward just a little bit to the part they were interested in. And, uh, that, which is Jesus' ministry. Uh, I mentioned last week that the Pharisees struggled with Jesus and his ministry because, among other things, he wasn't legalistic enough. They were always uh, piling on him for doing things like healing on the Sabbath. They kind of wanted Jesus to be the Messiah because they kind of wanted the Messiah to be there. But only if he would act a certain way. They knew what kind of Messiah they wanted, and so they trained themselves to expect that kind of Messiah. They believed deep down that the true Messiah was going to be no threat to their status, no threat to their rank or position. They thought they would be in the in crowd when he came. They probably thought their starting position when thinking about the appearance of Messiah, which again, they recognized could be any moment that their position would even be better. Their influence uh, then, when, when Messiah came, would not just be in this little corner of the world in Judea, but it would be over a vast civilization. And the fact is that they had it pretty good. I'm talking about the ruling class of the Jews now. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the priests and the scribes, they had status... They were reasonably secure financially. They were respected by the Jews. And they had decent connections with Herod and the Roman authorities. It was a comfortable life. They weren't anti-Messiah at all. They just weren't in a hurry. There was no urgency. Listen to me. There was no urgency in their mind. They wanted to see Messiah. They believed in Messiah and they believed theologically that this would be a good thing. But things were just fine with them, with them, not all the Jews, but with them, the way they were. And the other people we need to talk about is the rest of the Jewish population. You did have some rich Jews who were not part of the ruling class, but many, many more were poor. And all of them were held in some degree of contempt by Rome. This class of people, especially the poor in what is the vogue word, vogue word disenfranchised the disenfranchised jewish population these were the ones who were eagerly anticipating the arrival of messiah they longed for the changes that messiah would bring but remember even they wanted their jesus to be a certain way he got their attention all right with his teaching he certainly got their attention with his miracles But they were waiting for him to do what they wanted him to do rather than paying attention to what he was saying all along he was going to do. How many times did Jesus tell them flat out, I'm going to die, at least his disciples? When is he going to take the gloves off? We know this is Messiah, or we know if it's Messiah. We know what's going to happen. When's he going to do it? When's he going to overthrow Rome? When's he going to put us back on top? They were wrong about that. But of all the people in this story, it was the poor Jew, the disenfranchised Jew, who were the most excited, not only about his coming, but coming now. It was also they who felt the most keenly disappointed after Jesus was crucified. They must have felt like fools for singing Hosanna a week before. But they... And certainly the ruling Jews, Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, and priests... ...still knew that the time was right. If it wasn't Jesus, who was it? When would he show up? Now, I cannot prove this... ...but I think they had drifted into what today would be called... ...a lazy last days mentality. They knew the time was close, but no man knows the day or the hour. No urgency. Not on the part of the ruling class anyway... Only those who felt the pain of poverty, of persecution, injustice, and insignificance had any sense of urgency at all. Does any of this sound familiar? I'm looking at you, Scott Millis, and I'm looking at you, Living Word Family Church. This is harsh, but I have to say it. And it's not just in America, but I'm an American, so this is who I'm speaking to. There is a significant portion of the church in America that loves the Jesus of Scripture. And in terms of being born again, are prepared for his return. And we know, at least we think we do, that in terms of the prophetic writings of the Bible, the time is close. But rather than being excited about that, we're just okay with it why because things are okay here we're okay what's the rush to get out of here now that's less true right now than it was 10 months ago right but things are still pretty okay and 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 frankly now listen don't read anything more into what i'm saying than what i'm saying some of Perhaps a lot of this fighting over the election results is about that. It's about securing our comfort, our way of life for us and for our children. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe we should concern ourselves with keeping our freedoms, our rights, and so on. Patriotism is not incompatible with the gospel as long as we keep them in the right order. It's kingdom first, right? Right? Listen, I heard a guy. This guy has a well-known prophetic ministry. I'm not going to name him. I like some of the stuff I've heard from him. And I don't know when he said this, but it was sometime in the last uh, few months. I just watched this the other day. And he was asked by somebody, uh, because again, this guy has a prophetic ministry. And this guy wasn't challenging him. He was encouraging him. He said, will you say categorically that President Trump will win re-election? And his response was, and I quote, I really believe that God's grace on America, God's mercy on America, isn't finished yet. And boy, it would be finished if there wasn't a Trump sitting in that seat. That is nonsense. Regardless of how you feel about Trump, that is pa- that's a patent lie. You cannot make that statement when Israel was carried into captivity, God's mercy and grace weren't done with them. Was it? Now I understand, America's not in the same category as Israel when it comes to a covenant relationship. All I'm saying is that God's grace and mercy is never dependent on who is sitting in a seat of government, whether it's a king, a president, or anything else. And again, my point, the only reason I brought that up at all, is that I am concerned that what is driving a lot of people's train is simply maintaining the status quo. And the reason I point out the disenfranchised Jews of Jesus' day, their eagerness for the appearance of Messiah, is that right now there are hundreds of millions of believers in Christ who can think of nothing better than for Jesus to come back right now. In fact, the only good thing in their lives about staying one more day, about Jesus not coming back for one more day, is that means thousands more will be ushered into the kingdom. And this is an idea that is, we see show up again and again in the New Testament. These writings of, don't panic, he really is coming back. This was the overwhelming feeling. We want him back. We want him back. We want him back now. He's coming back. He's coming back. But what does it say about that? That what looks like a delay for us is simply a manifestation of God's patience. He's not willing that any would not have the opportunity to come to repentance. Now, for some believers, eh, Like I said, if, 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 it, if it's, it's one thing to say, well, I'm not in a hurry for Jesus to come back because that means people will have the opp- more people have the opportunity to be saved. If people are coming to Christ at a rate of 20,000, 25,000 a day or more, I don't know what the number is. I'll have to go check that out again because uh, it's there. I mean, it's not exact. It's on average. But that means, yeah, can we endure one more day? Yeah, for, for that many thousands of souls, sure. But I also and I, and I know that we here take that seriously too. This is a missions-minded church. But I also think that we have gotten so used to living, so accustomed to living in what is indeed the greatest nation on earth that it's honestly hard to truly believe that heaven is that much better. I've had conversations with people whose idea of heaven is just basically the best on earth maybe on steroids want me to tell you exactly what heaven's going to be like i don't know you know who else doesn't know you or anybody now, i've heard stories you have too and i and i and I've, and I've got to be i've got to tread carefully here i've heard from ministers that i like and respect about things they have seen whether in visions or trips to heaven, out-of-body experiences, I don't know. And I don't think they're lying. Let me just say this. I do believe they saw something, and I believe God showed them things in a way that's going to simply make heaven an attractive option, make sure there's something they can be excited about. But I don't think anybody who has described heaven in great detail is really telling me anything about what heaven is really like. And here's why I think that, because Paul himself... Had a revelation. I mean, he talks about I know a man, right? I know this guy. And everybody who reads the Bible or studies the Bible is convinced that the guy he's talking about is Paul. And Paul's humility about this experience is so great that he won't even say, Let me tell you what happened to me. Say, I know a man. He was caught up. It was such an experience, I can't even tell you if it was purely spiritual or if it was in body. But I saw things that I can't even tell you about. He said he was caught up to heaven. And everybody's like, they're reading this. Oh, what's he going to tell us about it? I can't even tell you. Too awesome. I'm okay with that. Why am I okay with that? Do I, why don't I want to know what it's like? I trust God. I know however it is, it's going to be good. I got into a spirited discussion. It was a friendly discussion between two believers, me and this, this other person. But it was spirited about what our living arrangements are going to be like. I'm, I'm serious, I mean, it, it, the word mansion, does it mean mansion as we mean mansion? Does it mean uh, apartments in a larger mansion? Are we going to be living in, more in community? Is there private property? Is there privacy? These are the kinds of things that came up. And it was good. It was kind of, it was interesting. But where I always land in a discussion like that is, ultimately where I land is, it doesn't matter right now. Where I land is, I, and I'll say this with 100% certainty. Nobody who gets to heaven is going to go, oh. This, don't get me wrong. I appreciate what you've tried to do here, Lord. But what I wanted was, nobody's going to say that. It's gonna, And that's why. Do you know why? Because who else is going to be in heaven with us? It's Jesus. That's what makes heaven heaven. Oh, my goodness. No no matter how badly you want, and some people have this idea. Well, heaven for you might be different than heaven for me. Heaven for me is a cabin by a lake with mountains in the background. Oh, heaven for me is a deer stand. Heaven for me is living in, uh, in, in tents but with thousands of people around me and, and never being alone. Oh, yeah, heaven for me is being alone most of the time. And back, so, so everybody has their own. But that's not true either. That's closer to a Mormon idea of heaven. You get your planet, I get my planet. No, heaven is what heaven is. But we're all going to love it. Because Jesus is there. And no matter what we want Jesus to be like, the only Jesus we have is the Jesus that is. And when we see him face to face, we're going to love him even more. They, the Jesus they wanted, the Jesus in in, in the day of, uh, the days we're talking about here, 2,000 years ago, the Jesus they wanted caused them to miss the Jesus that is. And the Jesus that is is better than any notion they or we could ever have about who he should be. I heard this story from Bob Yandian years ago when I was attending his church uh, as a Rhema student. Uh, He told this story about a fellow Rhema instructor. I believe it was uh, Randy Gerhart. And uh, Randy was telling the class or maybe the whole whole, uh, student body and instructors and everybody. They have these assemblies a couple times a week where he said uh, he was just sharing how the year before was the first Christmas that he had ever had money to spend to get something really nice for his son. They'd always been scrimping. They'd always had wonderful Christmases, wonderful times of celebration, but they always had to do it on the cheap, and he had money. He had done well enough that he had money to spend, and so he was so excited to set his little son on his lap Drop that Sears catalog. Anybody remember the Sears catalog? Anybody remember going through there and circling things or just dreaming? Oh, this would be so cool. Oh, you kids and your internet these days, you don't know what excitement is anymore. <laughs> anyway, he props his son up on his lap and gets that, that Sears catalog out and, and lays it there and says, son, you pick out whatever you want. Not everything, but you find the thing in there that you want and whatever it is, it's yours. This, that's, that's, that's a good part. Here's the best part. The son's excited, and he's flipping through the pages. And he's flipping through the pages, and his eyes are getting wild. And his smile's growing bigger, and he finally he just stops, and he shuts it and says, Dad, I don't know. You tell me what I want. I can't do it, Daddy. You tell me what I want. You see the difference between that and what I can have? He already said you can have whatever, whatever you want. Okay, Daddy, tell me what I want. That'd be an awesome thing to say to God. Now, listen, I'm not... That's because... Listen, God knows what is best for us. In faith circles, we, we've almost turned into God, thy will be done into a, a bad prayer. It's not. That, that, it is only when... God's will is already revealed. I'm not talking about sickness and disease. I'm not talking about uh, poverty. God's made his will and protection. God's made his will clear on those subjects, hasn't he? Those things are ours. We have a covenant right to those things and we receive them by faith. But some things aren't so certain. We think it's got to be a certain way. God, in order for this to work, this has to happen. I have to have this job. It has to be at this rate. I have to live in this place. I have to marry this person. How many people uh, that you know, maybe you're one of them, I've met somebody and my life will never be right unless I get to marry her. I felt that way. And I said, please. But I know that God is God. God and you've got to trust him with some things that no matter how deeply you desire them, God's plan might be something different. The hard thing to remember is if it's different, it's better. It's better for you. It's much more effective in those cases to pray in the Spirit because God knows better than we do what we should be praying for. Hey, listen, Back to this election for a second. If this election mess settles down in a way that pleases us, great. Great. But if it goes the other way, guess what? I still have promises to stand on. You still have promises to stand on. We still have a great commission, and we have this great promise. Jesus, the Jesus I need, the only Jesus, is coming back no matter what no matter who is in office a week from now a month from now 10 years from now jesus is coming back i want us to always remember that because it is helpful for me personally to ask myself this jesus is coming back how do i feel about that today again i'm not worried about my eternal destiny christ took care of that But am I ready? If he comes back today, am I ready to give an account for my time in this body? That's one thing I always need to be ready for. The great and terrible day of the Lord. It's not just about he's back and everything's cool. We need to stand before him and give an account for what we have done. Am I ready to do that? I need to be ready. But here's the other thing I have have to ask myself. He's coming back. Why am I not more excited about that? if i'm doing if i'm ready to give an account why am i not more excited about that and maybe it's because my love for this world has somehow dampened my longing for my true home that's something else i heard somebody say another minister said of course i know jesus is coming back and of course i look forward to that but not right now And it wasn't said in the sense of, sorry, we've got too many more people to save. It's like, things are good. Johnny Erickson Tata, who many of you are familiar with her ministry, she's been wheelchair bound since she was a teenager. And I disagree with her theological position on on healing and some things like that. but, uh, But she's shared some wonderful things over the years. And I remember reading just a short column by her in a magazine. This was 25 years ago, probably where she talked about, toward the end of this, it was a short article, but toward the end of it, she said, there are actually advantages that I have being a quadriplegic. I feel that being a quadriplegic gives me an advantage over some believers in some ways. And she listed a few, but the only one I remember, I remember because it just, it was like an arrow going through my heart. It said, I have a lively hope of heaven. Of course she does. She's going to be able to walk in heaven. She's going to be able to use her whole body in heaven, her glorified body in heaven. But why should her hope for heaven be any more lively than mine? That's the problem. I think my life is so great right now that I'm not in a hurry for that one. This, I believe. It's just the tension because I don't want to live in a godless society that is halfway to hell before I realize how badly I want to be in heaven. I want to be able, and it's tough, it's a tightrope. I want to be able to enjoy this life and all the blessings of God without ever feeling completely at home. I want to be able to enjoy the blessings of God and enjoy the blessings of, of liberty and everything else without ever losing my passion or sense of urgency for the return of Christ. To have a lively hope of heaven. But this, I believe, is the key to understanding what Jesus was talking about when he said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. We are too easily satisfied by the comforts of this world. It makes it hard to have that sense of urgency about getting out of here. And we are not going to be Fully sold out to the when he says he's not saying easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man or anybody else to go to heaven. He's talking about being in the kingdom, being utterly ruled uh, by the God that we serve and the God that we love. Yes, he's our father. Yes, he's our friend, but he is our king. The Jesus that is, not the Jesus the Jews wanted. But he is the Jesus they needed. He is the Jesus we need. And I'll wrap this up. Praise and worship team, you can be coming on up here. I'm going to kind of, huh? We are. Uh, I'll kind of circle back around to where I started right after praise and worship. Don't let anything that's going on in this country, don't let anything that's going on in this world steal the joy that we should experience as we celebrate the day that God gave us the Jesus we need. Season of giving. It's another phrase people use to describe, describe Christmas. And Jesus said, what about giving? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, any parent understands that nearly perfectly, I think. No, nothing you get for Christmas can equal the joy of watching the delight in your child's eyes as they open that gift that you know they're going to be excited to receive. Right? Right? I mean, whether it's your kid or not, you get something you know it's the perfect gift, and you're just, nobody, nobody could give you anything that's better than watching the joy that they get out of opening the gift that you gave them. I wish my daughter was in here. She's she was not feeling well. She's lying down in my office. So I hope she can hear this. But I do remember one Christmas she was opening a gift out there at Mom and Dad's and she was real little, bless her heart, but she opens it up and goes this. Oh. <laughs> it's like, "Oh, rainy, don't you know to fake it if you don't like it?" <sighs> but if you know, but if it's something they really like, you can tell. and You see that delight. And we know, as we celebrate Christmas, that God gave us the greatest gift when he gave us his son. Believe me, there is nothing we can do, nothing we can accomplish for him that will bring him more delight, more pleasure than simply receiving the gift that he gave us. Stand up with me. There is nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven, nothing you can do to earn your way into God's favor. You simply must receive the gift of salvation. Oh, but it cost him so much. He is delighted, as a good father is, as a good parent is, to see you receive what he spent this on. Yes, it was very expensive. Now receive it. Receive it. It's going to be perfect for you. He is perfect for you. I want you to have it. That's why I spent what I spent. That's why I sacrificed what I sacrificed. Because I love you. I want you to have me. I want you to have my son. Will you receive him? Have you received him as your savior? Have you made him your Lord? They go hand in hand. There is no true salvation without lordship, but his lordship is exactly what brings salvation. It's what brings joy. It's what brings deliverance from all the nonsense in our lives, all the sin, all the fear. If you've not made that decision, will you make it today? Don't waste any more time. I don't know how much time we have left. I'm not talking about this service. We've got about five or ten minutes left in this service. And that's if Jesus doesn't come back before this service is over. Don't waste another day. Do you? I always need to flip this around. If you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord, you personally, if you've never acknowledged, I am a sinner in need of salvation, and I recognize that Jesus is the only one who provided that for me, He died the death that was supposed to be my death and even my death wouldn't secure my salvation. He lived a perfect life, took my sin in his own body and paid the penalty for my sin. Has anybody in here, has has anybody in here never made that confession? I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe God raised him from the dead. I declare that he is my Lord. If you've never made that decision will you make it today just with a show of hands yep that's me right now praise the lord praise the lord anybody else if you recognize it as truth don't wait another day we might not have another day and even if we the world might have another day you might not that's why why it says now is the accepted time today is the day of salvation Bow your knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow your heart before the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody else? One last time, show of hands. Yep, today's my day. I'll do it. See you, sister. Praise the Lord. I'm not going to have you come up here, but she raised her hand. I didn't have everybody bow their head and close their eyes. Sister here is ready to give her heart to the Lord, soon-to-be sister. Can we all pray this out loud with her? You guys all right with that? Dear God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the salvation that you have provided. I believe Jesus is the only way. So today I declare he is my Lord. The death he died was for me. I received that gift of salvation And I now call you Father. Thank you, Father, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Lord and my Savior. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the kingdom. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.